Chapter Ten of the Trail of the Axe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trail of the Axe: A Story of the Red Sand Valley by Ridgewell Cullum. Chapter Ten: An Auspicious Meeting. Malkern as a village had two moments in the day when it wore the appearance of a thoroughly busy city. At all other times there was little outward sign to tell of the prosperity it really enjoyed. Malkern's really bustling time was at noon, when its workers took an hour and a half recess for the midday meal, and at six o'clock in the evening, when the day and night shifts at the mill exchanged places. There was no eight-hour working day in this lumbering village. The lumberjacks and all the people associated with it worked to make money, not to earn a mere living. They had not reached that deplorable condition of social permission when the worker for a wage believes he is a man who is making millions for an employer, who is prospering only by his, the worker's, capacity to do. They were working each for himself and regarded the man who could afford them such opportunity as an undisguised blessing. The longer the time, the higher the wages, and this was their whole scheme of life. Besides this, there is a certain pride of achievement in the lumberjack. He is not a mere automaton. He is a man virile, strong, and of a wonderful independence all his own. His spirits are animal, keen of perception, keen for all the joys of life such as he knows. He lives his life, whether in play or work. Whether he be a sealer, a cant-hook man, a teamster, or an axe-man, his pride is in his skill, and the rating of his skill is estimated largely by the tally of his day's work, on which depends the proportion of his wages. It was the midday dinner hour now, and the mill was debauching its rough tide of workers upon the main street. Harley Smith's bar was full of men seeking unnecessary appetizers. Every boarding-house was rapidly filling with hungry men, clamoring for the ample, even luxurious meal awaiting them. These men lived well. Their work was tremendous, and food of the best, and ample, was needed to keep them fit. A few stores which the village boasted were full of eager purchasers demanding instant service lest the precious time be lost. Harley Smith's hotel abutted on the main road, and the tide had to pass its inviting portals on their way to the village. Usually the veranda was empty at this time, for the regular boarders were at dinner, and the bar claimed those who were not yet dining. But on this occasion it possessed a solitary occupant. He was sitting on a hard Windsor chair, tilted back at a dangerous angle, with his feet propped upon the veranda rail in an attitude of ease, if not of elegance. He was apparently quite unconcerned at anything going on about him. His broad-brimmed hat was tilted well forward upon his nose, in a manner that served the dual purpose of shading his eyes from the dazzling sunlight, 
and permitting his gaze to wander whither he pleased without the observation of the passers-by. To give a further suggestion of indolent indifference, he was luxuriously smoking one of Harley Smith's best cigars. But the man's attitude was a pretense. No one passed the veranda who escaped the vigilance of his quick eyes. He scanned each face sharply and passed on to the next, nor did his watchfulness relax for one instant. It was clear he was looking for someone whom he expected would pass that way, and it was equally evident he had no desire to advertise the fact. Suddenly he pushed his hat back from his face, and at the same time his feet dropped to the boarded floor. This brought his chair on its four legs with a jolt, and he sat bolt upright. Now he showed the bloated young face of Jim Truscott. There was a look in his eyes of something approaching venomous satisfaction. He had seen the man he was looking for and promptly beckoned to him. Dick Mansell was passing at that moment, and his small ferret-like eyes caught the summons. He hesitated, nor did he come at once in response to the other's smile of good fellowship. "'Dick,' Truscott said. Then he added genially, I was wondering if you'd come along this way. Mansell nodded indifferently. His face was ill-humored, and his small eyes had little friendliness in them. He nodded and was about to pass on, but the other stayed him with a gesture. Don't go, he said. I want to speak to you. Come up to my room and have a drink. He kept his voice low, but he might have saved himself the trouble. The passing crowd were far too intent upon their own concerns to bother with him. The fact was his attitude was the result of nearly forty-eight hours of hard thinking, thinking inspired by a weak character goaded to offense by the rough but justifiable treatment meted out to him in Dave's office. This man's character, at no time robust, was now morally run down, and its condition was like the weakly body of an unhealthy man. It collected to itself every injurious germ and left him diseased. His brain and nerves were thrilling with resentment and a desire to get even with the board. He was furiously determined that Dave should remember with regret the moment he had laid hands upon him, and that he had come between him and the girl he had intended to make his own. Mansell, stepping on to the veranda, paused and looked the other full in the eye. "'Well,' he said, after a moment's doubtful consideration, "'what is it? Tain't like you giving drink away, especially to me. What monkey tricks is it?' There was truculence in the Sawyer's tone. There was offense in his very attitude. "'Are you coming to my room for that drink?' Truscott spoke quite coldly, but he knew the curse of the man's thirst. He had reason to. Mansell laughed without any mirth. "'Guess I may as well drink your brandy. It'll taste the same as any other. Go ahead.' 
his host at once led the way into the hotel and up the stairs to his room it was a front room on the first floor and comparatively luxurious the moment the door closed behind him mansell took in the details with some interest a mighty swell apartment for you he observed offensively truscott shrugged as he turned his back to pour out drinks at the table that's my business he said i pay for it and he added glancing meaningly over his shoulder i can afford to pay for it or anything else i choose to have mansell was a fine figure of a man and beside him the other looked slight even weedy but his face and head spoiled him both were small and mean and gave the impression of a low order of intelligence yet he was reputed one of the finest sawyers in the valley and a man when not in the drink to be thoroughly trusted before he went away to the yukon with jim he had been a teetotaler for two years and on that account and his unrivaled powers as a sawyer he had acted as the other's foreman in his early lumbering enterprise except however for those two years his past had in it far more shadows than light he grinned unpleasantly no need to ask how you come by the stuff he said truscott was round on him in an instant his eyes shone wickedly but there was a grin about his lips the same way you tried to come by it too only you couldn't keep your damned head clear you couldn't let this stuff alone he handed the man a glass of neat brandy you and your cursed drink nearly ruined my chances it wasn't your fault you didn't when i ran that game up in dawson i was a fool to take you into it i did it out of decency because you had gone up there with me and quite against my best judgment when i saw the way you were drinking if you'd kept straight you'd be in the same position as i am you wouldn't have returned here more or less broke and only too ready to set rotten yarns going around about me the sawyer had taken the brandy and swallowed it now he set the glass down on the table with a vicious bang what yarns he demanded angrily tcha hardwick's a meddling busybody you might have known it would come back to me sooner or later but i didn't bring you here to throw these things up in your face you brought it on yourself keep a civil tongue and if you like to stand in i'll put you into a good thing you're not working and you've got no money truscott's questions came sharply his plans were clear in his mind these points he had made sure of already but he wanted to approach the matter he had in hand in what he considered the best way in dealing with a man like mansell he knew the sawyer to have scruples of a kind that is until they had been carefully undermined by brandy it was his purpose to undermine them now you seem to know a heap mansell observed sarcastically then he became a shade more interested what's the good thing 
Jim poured some brandy out for himself, at the same time, as though unconsciously, replenishing the other's glass liberally. The sawyer watched him while he waited for a reply, and suddenly a thought occurred to his none-too-ready brain. "'Drink, eh?' he laughed mockingly, as though answering a challenge on the subject. "'Drink?' Say, who's been doing the drink since you got back? Folks say as your gal has gone right back on you. That there wench as you was a sparkin' before we lit out. And it's clear along of liquor. They say you're soused most every night, and most days, too. You should get gassin', I don't think. The man's mean face was alight with brutish glee. He felt he had handed the other a pretty retort, and in his satisfaction he snatched up his glass and drank off its contents at a gulp. Indifferent to the jibe, Jim smiled his satisfaction as he watched the other drain his glass. "'You've got no work?' he demanded, as Mansell set it down empty. "'Sure I ain't,' the other grinned. "'And—' he added, under the warming influence of the spirit. I ain't worryin' a heap, neither. My credit's good with the boardin' house boss. You see, he went on, his pride of craft in his gimlet eyes, I'm kind of known here for a boss sawyer. When they want sawyers, there's always work for Dick Mansell. Your credit's good, Truscott went on, ignoring the man's boasting. Then you have no money? I allows the market's kind of low. Mansell's mood had become one of clumsy jocularity under the influence of the brandy. If you can get work so easily, why don't you? Truscott demanded, filling the two glasses again as he spoke. Mansell seated himself on the bed, unbidden. Well, he began expansively, I'm kind of holiday-makin', as they say. You see, he went on with a leer, I worked so almighty hard getting back from the Yukon, I'm kind of fatigued. Savvy? Guess I'll get to work later. Say, one of them for me? He finished up, pointing at the glasses. Truscott nodded, and Mansell helped himself greedily. The former fell in with the other's mood. He found him very easy to deal with. It was just a question of sufficient drink. Well, I don't believe in work anyway. That is, unless it happens to be my pleasure, too. I worked hard up at Dawson, but it was my pleasure. I made good money, too. A hell of a sight more than you or anybody else ever had any idea of. You ran a dandy game, agreed the sawyer, with plenty of customers, with mighty fat rolls of money. Mansell nodded. I was a fool to quit you, he said regretfully. You were, but it isn't too late, if you aren't yearning to work too hard. Truscott's smile was crafty, and even with the drink in him, Mansell saw and understood it. "'Monkey tricks?' he said. "'Monkey tricks, if you like. 
Mansell looked over at the bottle. "'Hand us another horn of that poison and I'll listen,' he said. The other poured out the brandy readily, taking care to be more than liberal. He watched the Sawyer drink, and then, drawing a chair forward, he sat down. "'What's that old mill of mine worth?' he asked suddenly. They exchanged glances silently. Truscott was watching the effect of his question, and the other was trying to fathom the meaning of it. "'I'd say,' Mansell replied slowly, giving up the puzzle and waiting for enlightenment, "'I'd say, to a man who needs it bad, it's worth anything over fifteen thousand dollars. For scrappin', I'd say it wasn't worth but five thousand. I was thinking of a man needing it. Fifteen thousand and over. Truscott leaned forward in his chair and became confidential. Dave wants to buy that mill, and I'm going to sell it to him, he said impressively. I'll take twenty thousand for it and get as much more as I can. See? Now, I don't want that money. I wouldn't care to handle his money. I've got plenty, and the means of making heaps more if I need it. He paused to let his words sink in. Mansell nodded with his eyes on the brandy bottle. As yet, he did not see the man's drift. He did not see where he came in. He waited, and Truscott went on. "'Now, what would you be willing to do for that twenty thousand, or more?' he asked, smilingly. The other turned his head with a start, and, for one fleeting second, his beady eyes searched his companion's face. He saw nothing there but quiet good nature. It was the face of the old Jim Truscott, used to hide the poisoned mind behind it. "'Give me a drink,' Mansell demanded roughly. "'This needs some thinkin'. Truscott handed him the bottle and watched him while he drank nearly half a tumbler of the raw spirit. "'Well?' Mansell breathed heavily. "'Seems to me I'd do a heap,' he said at last. Would you take a job as Sawyer in Dave's mill and and act under my orders? It kinda depends on the orders. For some reason the lumberman became cautious. The price was high, almost too high for him. Truscott suddenly rose from his seat and, crossing the room, turned the key in the door. Then he closed the window carefully. He finally glanced round the room and came back to his seat. Then, leaning forward and lowering his tone, he detailed carefully all that the lumberman would have to do to earn the money. It took some time in the telling, but at last he sat back with a callous laugh. "'That's all it is, Dick, my boy,' he cried familiarly. "'You'll be as safe as houses. Not only that, but I may not need your help at all. I have other plans which are even better, and which may do the job without your help. See? This is only in case it is necessary. You see, I don't want to leave anything to chance. I want to be ready. 
and I want no after consequences. You understand? You may get the money for doing nothing. On the other hand, what you have to do entails little enough risk. The price is high simply because I do not want the money, and I want to be sure I can rely on you. The man's plausibility impressed the none-too-bright-witted lumberman. Then, too, the brandy had done its work. His last scruple fled, banished by his innate crookedness, set afire by the spirit and the dazzling bait held out to him. It was a case of the clever rascal dominating the less dangerous, but more brutal, type of man. Mansell was as potter's clay in this man's hand. The clay dry would have been impossible to mold, but moistened, the artist in villainy had no difficulty in handling it, and the lubricating process had been liberally supplied. "'I'm on,' Mansell said, his small eyes twinkling viciously. "'I'm on, sure. Twenty thousand, gee!' But I'll need it all, Jim, he added greedily. I'll need it all, and any more you get. You said it yourself. I was to get the lot. Yes, as though reassuring himself. I'm on. Truscott nodded approvingly. Good boy, he said pleasantly. But there's one more thing, Dick. I make it a proviso that you don't go on any teetotal racket. I know you. Anyway, I don't believe in the water wagon worth a cent. It don't suit you in work like this. But don't get drunk and act foolish. Keep on the edge, see? Get through this racket right, and you've got a small pile that'll fill your belly up like a distillery, after. You'll get the stuff in a bundle the moment you've done the work. Mansell reached out for the bottle without invitation, picked it up, and put the neck to his lips. Nor did he put it down till he had drained it. It was the culminating point. The spirit had done its work, and as Truscott watched him, he knew that, body and soul, the man was his. The lumberman flung the empty bottle on the bed. "'I'll do it, you damned crook,' he cried. "'I'll do it, but not because I like you or anything to do with you. It's the bills I need, sure, green, crisp, crinkly bills. But I'll need fifty of them now. Hand over, pard,' he cried exultingly. "'Hand over, you imp of hell.' I want fifty now, or I don't stir a hand. Hand em. Suddenly the man staggered back and fell on the bed, staring stupidly at the shining silver-plated revolver in the other's hands. Hold your noise, you drunken hog, Jim cried in a biting tone. This is the sort of thing I suppose I can expect from a blasted fool like you. Now, understand this. I'm going to give you that fifty, not because you demand it, but to seal our compact. And by the holy Moses, when you've handled it, if you attempt to play any game on me, I'll blow you to hell quicker than any through mail could carry you there. Get that? 
and let it sink into your fool brain. End of chapter 10 Recording by Roger Moline